So we've had two sermons on giving and encouragement to give, and I hope you realize that the way we deal with money is a heart issue. It's a spirit issue. It's expensive to follow Jesus. We're commanded to imitate Christ who gave everything in obedience to the Father, who gave us His only Son. We spoke last week about how giving is something we have to learn. It, giving is a discipline. Giving, uh, now a few people are gifted uh, in being generous, uh, and I say a few because it's probably a few, but they just have that gift. The rest of us, it's something we have to learn and we have to practice, and uh, it's just like prayer. We have to learn how to pray. We have to learn how to uh, spend time reading our Bible and devoting time to that. We have to learn how to attend church regularly and consistently. It's just something, these spiritual disciplines don't come natural to the flesh. They're not things that sinners just naturally do. So we have to learn how to do these things as we continually yield to the Spirit. But this week I want to talk about uh, the obligation. We've talked about giving. We've talked about giving uh, cheerfully and sacrificially uh, uh, and substantially and consistently. But this week I want to talk about uh, our obligation as a church that we have to be faithful recipients of the gifts that are given. And we don't want to be like the dishonest uh, preacher in this story. When we receive the money, we need to do what we're told to do with the money. And so this uh, is the emphasis of our text today, that as a church, what we learn today is that as a church, we need to be faithful with the funds that are entrusted to us in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes even of uh, each other and the world. The eyes of the Lord the eyes are, are to each other and to the world. We need to see faithfulness in the way that First Baptist Church of Olney handles money. So let's remember the context of this passage. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, which talk about stewardship, which talk about uh, an offering that's being taken. So if you'll remember, there's an offering that Paul is taking up amongst the Gentile churches, and they're gathering uh, all this uh, money from the Gentile churches, and they're going to take it to Jerusalem to help out those saints in Jerusalem that are struggling because they're poor, they're persecuted, they're hungry, and they're in a destitute situation. And so Paul is gathering this offering and saying, you guys realize we are, are really uh, uh, standing on the shoulders, uh, so to speak, uh, the, the way we're able to worship God and know Jesus, we're really standing on the shoulders of the Jews because Christ is their Messiah. Uh, that's, he came to them first and then to us. And so we owe them. We, we are an, owe a debt of gratitude to our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, for sharing the gospel with us. And so he wants the, the Gentile churches to go and bless those Jews in Jerusalem that are, that are believers in Jesus Christ that are suffering for their faith. And sometimes we call this uh, just the offering for the saints. You might see it referred to that way, or the Jerusalem offering. But you'll notice as you read your Bible that the topic of this offering comes up in multiple books. So this is kind of a, a real central aspect of, of Paul's ministry that we see in the epistles that he wants to do something for those struggling saints in Jerusalem. So Paul is writing uh, these chapters to Corinth, the Corinthians. He has a tumultuous relationship with this church in Corinth. There are many critics of Paul in this church. And of course, 
What do critics really hate when you do? The critics in the church hate it when you stand up and you ask for money. And here's Paul standing up and asking for money. He's asking for these funds. And so it's very important that if Paul, who has critics, is going to be asking for this offering, that the way the offering is handled really needs to be on the up and up. So people will have confidence in Paul and his associates and that they will have confidence in the mission work that they are doing. So this letter that Paul sent to them to tell them to straighten up, he was having to get on to the Corinthians for rejecting his authority as an apostle. So he sends Titus down there with this letter, and he's not sure how the Corinthians are going to receive this letter. Are they going to remain hostile towards him? Are they going to continue to reject Paul and his ministry? Because they look at Paul and they see a guy who's suffering. They look at Paul and they see a guy who's being thrown in prison. And they say, can this guy really be blessed? Can he really be the authority whenever he comes here? He's really not that dynamic of a preacher. We have a lot better speakers that come in here, and he's claiming apostolic authority over us, and uh, he's suffering and he's in prison. Would he really be suffering in prison and sick if God was really with him? So they've got all these questions about Paul. And so Titus takes this letter down, and when he, when he gets down there and reads the letter and expresses Paul's heart to them, they repent. Now, not all of them. There's still critics there. But the church in large returns to Paul. It comforts him. It brings him great joy that they are receiving and accepting his ministry. And so then he writes them this letter that we have. And he sends Titus back down there to them with this letter that we're reading. And in this letter, he's talking about sending Titus, he says, he's, he's writing the letter, he's writing the letter saying, I'm going to send Titus and two other guys with him down there to you guys, and we want you to fulfill your pledge. Y'all promised you would give to the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. Now I want you to follow through with it and to do even better. And I'm going to send these three guys down there, and they're going to receive it, and they're going to help take the offering to the saints in Jerusalem. How can we break this text down? It's a little bit complicated. But if you'll look at verses, in your, look in your Bible there, if you'll see verses 16, 17, and the first part of 23. So sometimes when we talk about Bible verses, if we're just talking about the first part of a verse, sometimes we'll say like 23a, and the last part will be 23b. So verses 16, 17, and 23a talk about Titus. So we'll learn a little bit about Titus. And then verses 18 and 19 speak about somebody called the famous brother. So we learn about the famous brother who's going to be going down there with Titus, to, or going over there with Titus. Then in verses 19b to 21, we see uh, Paul talking about how they're going to be accountable with this gift, Okay, the accountability of those that are handling the gift. And then verse 22 speaks of... of uh, a tested and earnest brother, or an earnest and tested brother. And then verses 23 and 24 speak to what Paul wanted the Corinthian church to prove to the brothers. So we're going to learn about what these guys are doing and who these guys are. So let's look at verse 16. Paul says, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal... But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. 
So we've got these three men being sent down here to collect this offering. Titus is the first one. And Paul is thanking God that, that God had made Titus love the Corinthians just like he loves the Corinthians. So Paul truly cares for these Corinthian people in this church, even the ones that have been cruel to him. He loves them. He wants God's best for them. And what he's learned is that Titus feels the same way. He wanted Titus to take the letter down. Titus said, I want to take the letter down. I want to go back there and see these people uh, that I love so much that I've been able to minister among them. And so this is an example that we have here in Scripture of what they would call a letter of commendation. So guys that were ministering in the early church to show their authority uh, to minister in a church would take a letter of commendation. It's interesting that we do something similar to this. Have you ever heard of people moving their membership by letter? We, we do a similar thing in Baptist life where, uh, and, and of course now the secretaries mail the other church, they say, uh, can you send us a letter uh, that, that basically says, these people that want to join your church, they are members of our church in good standing. They've been, uh, as far as we can tell, they, are, they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've repented of their sins. They've been baptized by immersion. And so we send letters. The way they would do it in the old days is if you were going to move from Kentucky to Texas, they would, you, you would go to your pastor and you would get a letter of commendation that, that would tell who, whatever church you were going to join, here's the church I'm coming from and here's my letter. And you would hand that letter in to transfer your membership into that church. I would show that you'd been baptized and that you were a church member. So here we have a letter that's showing that Titus is approved. And uh, it's interesting that we have a copy of this. One of the things that the Corinthians were critical of Paul about is that he didn't give them letters of commendation. He came in uh, under his own authority. But here he's giving Titus a letter saying, Titus is endorsed by us, the apostles. And what Paul is thankful for here is Titus's like-mindedness. Isn't it a blessing in the Christian life to find like-minded people? I would say that is my favorite thing about the church that was my favorite thing about going over to the preaching conference is you're just in a room with a bunch of guys that care exactly about what you care about. Uh, for, for us, it was kind of specific as we were trying to become better preachers together. But when we come to the church, we find like-minded people that we want to become more like Christ together. And we want to cultivate that in our church. There is a comfort when you can come to worship with this body of believers, have conversations with people in this church. Um, our church is committed to a high view of the Scripture. We have a high view of the Word of God, and uh, we place a lot of importance on obeying it and living for Jesus Christ. Well, how many people just out in the world value that? You see that all over TV where you're really encouraged to value Christ above all and to obey Him? No. So we go out here, and the world is not like-minded. But what a blessing it is to come in here and to find like-minded people. That's a comfort to us that God has given us. And you know, I've run across people, and maybe this is surprising because you know, until maybe the last five, ten years, even in my life, uh, I've never really encountered people that will say things to me like, well, we probably wouldn't come to your church. We probably wouldn't come to your church because of your view of marriage. Wouldn't come to your church because of your view of uh, sexual, human sexuality. And I've had people actually in the last several years tell me that. Well, probably wouldn't come to your church for that. And so there are going to be people 
that don't want to come to our church because we, we basically still believe what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. We haven't changed what we believe. And because we're not changing right along with a confused culture, we are now out of step with the culture. We're the ones that are the oddballs, right? Now, the culture used to at least say, okay, we'll acknowledge that's right. You go knock on someone's door, open the door, say, are you living for Christ? No, I'm not. I know I should be. Now you knock on the door and say, that book's not true. So it's a different way of, of, the, of, of the culture. As, as uh, we become a less religious nation, at least culturally, you see, there's a difference between cultural Christianity and real Christianity. Cultural Christianity is kind of when people say they're Christians, but they're really not. They're, they say, oh, I'm Baptist. Why, why are you a Baptist? Because uh, my parents took me to a Baptist church. Or I was Catholic, we're a Catholic family. People used to sort of identify as Christians, even though Christ was not their king. Well, what is happening now in this, in this culture is the cultural Christians don't feel like they have to be part of a church to be accepted in a community. Now, that's been going on for many years, but we're really starting to see that, uh, the effects of that, where they, they say the largest growing religious uh, group is the nuns. What's your religion? I have no religion. They're not even saying, well, we're kind of Baptist. We're non-practicing Catholics, or whatever people used to say about their, about their faith. Now, the cultural Christianity is almost a dying thing, and you know what? That's probably good. Because then you can come to church and be with people who really believe what they say they believe. And they're not just pretending to believe it so they could get more clients down at the insurance agency or whatever. But we're not going to change what we have believed here since 1889 just because the world is confused about what the truth is. And so it's fine if someone says, I can't come to your church because of what you all believe. I'm glad at least they think that we believe things. I wouldn't want to go to a church that didn't believe things, that didn't have convictions. But the awesome thing about having the same convictions is that we're like-minded. And that's how it should be with your closest friendships. It should especially be that way with your marriage. You know, people say things to Melissa and me about our marriage. Oh, we'll we'll counsel people. Oh, I wish we had a marriage more like yours. And I'm telling you, we don't have some kind of perfect marriage. Um, But we do share the same core convictions. Okay, it's not a perfect marriage. But we basically see things the same way. We both basically believe that Melissa is always right. <laughs> She's not here, so I can say that. Things work out if I just remember that. <laughs> but really, we do have the same worldview. We care about the same things. Uh, I hope we could say that about our church as we think about our relationship with each other. We have the same view of the world, that we care about the same things, and that's what you want. Now, Melissa and I have a similar background, okay? Uh, there's, we kind of grew up in the same era and think about things a lot in the same way, but also, over years and years of being married, we've cultivated, through discipleship and following Jesus, we've co- tried to cultivate that mind of Christ, So the more that we as a body of Christ, just like in my marriage, the more we as a body of Christ cultivate a Christ-like mind. So if you get the mind of Christ, if you start to think and love the things Jesus loves, if you start to hate the things Jesus hates, 
if the things that cause Jesus to be sorrowful are the things that cause you to be sorrowful, if we're all cultivating the mind of Christ, we're going to be very like-minded. We're going to care about the same things. We're going to care about other people. We're going to care about people in this body, people outside of this body. And so that's what we want to cultivate, That kind of what Paul's saying there with Titus. He's rejoicing. He says, thank God we feel the same way about you, Corinthians, like-mindedness of a brother. Look at verse 18. He says, there's another guy coming too. With him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Remember, giving uh, is an act of grace. It's something God is doing. As we carry out this thing God is doing that's being administered by us, it's God's work. He's just letting us participate in it for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. This famous brother is coming along. Don't you wish you knew who the famous brother was? We're not told anything about him. Was it Luke? Was it Apollos? Was it Barnabas? We have no idea. And if God wanted you to know who the famous brother is, he would have had Paul write it down. So that's apparently, it's really not that important. But what matters here is, is the way he's described. He was famous for his preaching. Do people you think care about preaching? You know, we have to come in here and sit down and listen. I've been at a conference all week where I'm reminded when I go to that conference every, every uh, year that preaching does matter. Why should we care about preaching? Here's why. And here's how we should view it as a church. And I'm encouraged by the brothers that I was with this week that this is really something they impress upon their church that pro probably I don't mention enough because it seems very presumptuous to say this, but hear me, I'm not trying to be have a, a big head about this because it's not my word that I'm hoping you'll receive. It's God's word. But we should care about preaching because when the pastor or whoever's up here, it doesn't have to be me, we don't care about the man, we care about the, the material, the word, is that whoever's up here expositing the Bible, drawing out the meaning so you understand what the Bible means, whenever that's happening, every week we are hearing from God. And so we could say, what did God say to our church today? Today, God is saying to us, we need to be faithful with the money that is given in the sight of God, in the sight of each other, and in the sight of even the world, that we need to be on the up and up in the way that we deal with these gifts that we receive as a church. That is what the passage is about, and so that's how God is speaking to us today. So whenever we decide to miss church for some lame reason, you know, just say out loud to yourself, well, I've decided not to go to church today because blank, fill in the blank. Instead of hearing what God has to say to me, I chose to do this. And it might help us become more consistent in our attendance. If we thought, when you got up in the morning and you, and you thought, you know, and, and, and you know, look, I'll say, I'm not talking about myself here. God has spoken through a donkey. He can speak through me. So I've got, I have to always remember that when I get up to preach in the pulpit. It's like, all hope is not lost. Uh, God can still speak through you. And, and really, uh, anytime someone just reads the Bible to you, God is speaking to you. Okay? But if we'll think about that, that God is, that if you get up in the morning and say, I wonder what God has to say to me today. 
Don't think of it as me talking to you. Think of it as God's word, just being the meaning being drawn out for you. I'm just the messenger. But that we are hearing from God, that gives a whole different flavor to what's going on in this room. As we speak to God, as we sing together, and we tell him how much we love him, and then when we open up the word, he speaks to us and tells us how much he loves us, tells us how he wants us to live, how he wants us to operate as a body of Christ. Now, it seems strange to me that Paul would even write this down, that there's a famous brother in the church. All the church says he's famous among all the churches. But it does show that in the early church, there was an elevation of the act or the task of preaching. And this man was well-known. And he was so well-known, I think that's one of the reasons Paul sent him down there. He had a good reputation. He was well-known. He's going to be one of the guys helping with this offering, which is going to be for God's glory and to build up the fellowship between the Jewish church in, in Jerusalem and the Gentile churches. So, which, of course, when I say Gentile churches, understand there were Jew, the people that were Jewish in background that were in the Gentile churches, but they were in areas that were predominantly uh, Gentile. So notice how Paul talks next. He's talked about Titus, the famous brother, and now he talks about the accountability. This is kind of the meat of the sermon for us as a church. <clears throat> he says, we take this course. I'm sending you these guys. And notice Paul knows he's got critics and he's not even participating in this. He's sending other people down there. Very smart. He says, we take this course of having multiple sets of hands and eyes on this money so no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We want to do this in a way that honors the Lord, but also cannot be criticized by man. Paul wants this to be considered uh, done in a way that is above board. Now, you know, back in those days when people would raise money, whoever was raising the money would take a cut. And Paul was sending people down there and said, we're not doing that. Paul's not going to take a cut. He's not even going to come and raise the money. He's sending others. He's sending a group of men to collect and distribute for God's will and for the goodwill uh, to be spread in these churches and offering for the church in Jerusalem. Paul is concerned, how is this going to look? How is this going to look? How will it look to the Lord? Is our heart right? God sees what's invisible to man, but man sees how is the behavior. Is it right? Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it noble? Now we can think here of many ministries that have gone south, and usually they say it happens over gold, girls, or glory, right? That's usually where a ministry fails, when someone begins to have more confidence in their own integrity than they need to. Uh, the latest, just biggest scandal uh, that, that came through was with Ravi Zacharias. And we all loved Ravi Zacharias, credible apologist, for decades and decades doing great work. But in the last leg of his race on this earth, we learned that he became entangled and ensnared in sexual sin. This great apologist, this great preacher who had spoken all over the place was basically harassing, abusing women, committing sexual sin, and perhaps we have uh, a bo his board of, uh, of course, you know, this is one of the problems. It wasn't, wasn't a church. He was largely divorced from church life because his ministry had him in different churches all the time. But Ravi Zacharias' ministry, the people that were the trustees and the board members, 
of his ministry were not calling him to account. They were not, uh, whenever there were allegations, they were not faithfully pursuing those. They were covering up things that were going on, whether they realized it or not. He was very cunning, and, he, and, and the money was being used. They even did one payment to settle a lawsuit, uh, allegation of harassment. They paid someone $250,000 out of the ministry's money. You know, and so even donors now have filed a class action lawsuit saying, give us that money back. And whenever this all broke, they said the Ravi Zacharias' ministry itself was worth $38 million. So we're talking about big money and big responsibility in these big evangelical ministries and even in the ministry of our church itself. It's important that we um, don't let anybody become untouchable. Everyone should be able to be questioned about what are we doing with this money? How are you spending this money? Um, and, and I really, you know, when I, when I found out about all this Ravi Zacharias stuff, you know what I did? I, have, I had maybe five or six Ravi Zacharias books. You know what I did with them? I threw them away. And I thought to myself, I've been helped a lot by this man's ministry, but now he's lost his credibility in the eyes of the world. Even the world knew what he was doing was wrong. If the world knows what you're doing is wrong, you must be doing something wrong. And that ministry, the sad thing is that the, the ministry money was funding uh, the bad behavior. We cannot have that in Christianity. We can especially not have that in the church. We have a duty to be transparent with the money. We have a duty to budget the money and to spend the money with faithfulness, with eyes of faith, we don't need to look at the money the way the world looks at the money. We need to look at the money with eyes of faith, but with responsibility and with wisdom. And just so you know, I know I've said this before, but I don't know who gives the money. Y'all know that, right? I don't, I don't know who gives or who doesn't give. So when I'm up here yelling at you to tithe, I don't know who tithes and who doesn't tithe. All right? I just assume it's going to hit who it needs to hit, Right? So I'm not aiming sermons at anybody, but I do have a hand in some ways uh, of, of kind of guiding how we think about the funds that we receive. And so whenever I'm going to purchase something and, and usually get counsel for that, if it's a large purchase, we're going to have more than one person making the decision, kind of like the way they have more than one person going down here and receiving the offering. We'll ask questions, and the questions I ask in my mind when I've got the church credit card would I spend my own money on this? Would the church feel this is a wise thing to buy? Is this actually necessary? What about a non-believer? What would they think about this purchase? So if we're somewhere, well, I'm with Melissa, we're at a conference, and I uh, got the church credit card, and we're going to buy a meal, and I think, uh, should, a preacher, should a preacher put a steak on the church credit card? <laughs> The answer is no, I uh, would not buy some extravagant meal. Because what if I ran up a big bill and the waiter is not a Christian and they see this big bill here of, 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 of a meal and they say, he's taking advantage of his church. He got his church's credit card and he's, he's, those nice people have given their money and here he is buying himself a big steak. Now, that's not to say the church shouldn't spend money on things where it needs to be spent. We need to have beautiful buildings. Are you sitting in a beautiful building? Absolutely. This, I love it when people come and visit First Baptist Church of Olney, and they're always amazed at how beautiful our building is. It's fine for us to do that, 
to have beautiful, well-maintained buildings. And we have a beautiful kitchen in our fellowship hall. Uh, we have a beautiful sanctuary. We have wonderful parsonage homes. We're going to get a nice new van that we'll be able to do ministry with. That's very good. And I say in some ways, uh, that reflects our worship. Uh, we don't want to be like Judah, where they were all living in paneled, uh, cedar-paneled houses while the house of the Lord stood in disrepair. It's fine for us to have uh, things that re represent what we think God is worth, that we will spend the extra money. But things have to be done with accountability. Things have to be done out in the open. We have to spend with common sense. We have to use thrift, and we have to be, again, transparent in the way that we, we deal with things, such as where if you came and looked at my credit card bill, I would want you to feel like, okay, he's not abusing that privilege of having a church credit card. And that's because there's so many critics. There's so many people looking at the church trying to find a reason to knock it down, a reason not to listen, a reason not to respect what God's Word has said because the people are acting so badly. Like Gandhi said, I love your Jesus, but I don't like his Christians. We don't want to be the reason that somebody would not listen or that they would develop a bad attitude because we're doing something that's not above board. People want to condemn. Don't give them a reason. As we work together as a church, let's try to do things in such a way where people would say they're doing their dead level best to do what their Lord and Savior says to do. And then in verse 22, we have the third man mentioned. And with them we are sending our brother whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So we have the brother who's famous, and we have Titus, and now we have the brother who's, he says, that we've often tested. I wonder what that means. I wonder what that was like. like they're always testing me, <laughs> you know, the brother we've often tested. They've, they've been looking to see this man through the circumstances they've put him in, have always been a test, and he always proves to be earnest. When, when, they put, when they ask him to go into a place where the pressure's on, you know, probably, what if that's Timothy? You know, it seemed like we, we think of Timothy as timid, but you know, if you ever look, Paul sends Timothy to the hardest places. He had great confidence in Timothy. Maybe this was someone like Timothy who was put into, hey, we've got a problem over here. These people aren't getting along. Timothy, can you go see if you can work it out? He was tested often. And he was always found earnest in many matters. This man is the real deal. Tested and found earnest. How earnest are you as a Christian? How earnest are you especially when the pressure is on? Now Paul didn't say this man's name. He just identified him by his character. If someone identified you by your character, what would they say? Would they say tested and earnest? I wonder how it would be described. I, you'd hate for someone to say, oh, you know, oh, wishy-washy and fake is coming over. Oh, shallow and inconsistent. We don't need to let him go do it. Take the offering up. You know, petty and negative. He's coming over. <laughs> how about old prideful and self-pity? Have you talked to him in a while? What about entitled and lazy? How's he doing? You know, if we're identified by our character, I wonder what, People would say, but what did Paul say of this man? Tested often and proving to be earnest. And then he comes back to Titus in verse 23. As for Titus, he's my partner. Titus is a fellow worker. That's how he described Titus' character, didn't he? He's with me and he works. 
and he does this work for other people, for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. And what does he call the church there? Look at that right there, guys. What does he call the church in verse 23? The glory of Christ. The church is the glory. Why do we need to be careful how we deal as a church? Because we're the glory of Christ. People are going to see the glory of Christ in the way First Baptist Church does things. As we operate, not according to the world standards here, but according to the standards of another kingdom, Christ will be glorified and lifted up. 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you and these men. So give proof that you guys are what we said you were by your generosity and giving to the Jerusalem offering. How can we be a church that shows the glory of Christ? Because we're sinners. We naturally want to operate in the dark. We naturally want to keep secrets. But in Christ, we do things in the open. He is the light of the world. We operate in the light. The church is the glory of Christ because it's full of a bunch of people whose lives have been changed by the power of the Spirit of God. We are the glory of Christ because we echo the things that Christ did in his generosity. We operate in a different way, on a different economy. We need to be the kind of church that's faithful in our stewardship, but we need to be the kind of church that's faithful in everything, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the world. But with our stewardship, this is an area. Hey, guys, we're going to have to build something. We don't know exactly what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do something about the buildings, right? We know that. That way back in 1916, the people got together and they said, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to build a sanctuary. We're going to have to build a place where we can gather and worship. And they got together and they did it. And you know how much it costs? Does anybody remember? Is anybody here? No. It was $10,000. Oh, man. <laughs> now, I don't know what that would have equated to back in those days, but they went down there and they dug that, dug that uh, basement out by hand and built that sanctuary over there, which was the sanctuary until this one was built in 1963, or, or opened in 1963, and then this one was re renovated to become sort of a gym and to be used uh, in different ways. Um, the bottom used, was used as a fellowship hall in the basement until the fellowship hall was built. But there were people that were forward-thinking, and they were thinking about the glory of God, and they, they raised the money. And I'm sure raising $10,000 in 1916 was no small feat. But they did it, and we're thankful for their faithfulness generations and generations and generations later. And so now we're going to have to step up and do something where people generations and generations later will say, thank you for their faithfulness. You don't always get to be a part of a church building campaign, but it's a blessing that God gives to some of us to be able to build something that will bless people, to plant trees under which you will not sit. You'll never possibly enjoy the shade, but we build these knowing that future generations will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in a, in a place that's conducive to education and worship. That's why we're going to do it. And whenever we do something like that and the, and the people in this town drive by and they see this building going up, they, we want them to know one thing. That's where transformed people are doing something. 
They're doing something that's bigger than themselves. And we're going to think about giving sacrificially and we're going to think about managing what is given well. And it's going to be an effect of the gospel that will be visible even to people driving by in cars. If there's no transformation, if we're not like-minded and dynamically following Jesus Christ, there's no change, there's no effect, there's no saved. The three that were chosen to deliver this offering were changed men. And Paul knew when he sent them down there it would be evident that, they, that these Corinthians were participating in the right thing. They were marked as followers of Jesus. Have you been changed because of the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus based on what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection based upon who he is? Because if you have, your heart has changed in the way you think about giving money, but also in the way you think about handling it. And we want to be a church family with changed hearts that handles money in a way that honors God and that shows the world that we're transformed and that we're following our Savior all to the glory of God. Let's pray.